I will guarantee one result if you commit yourself to spiritual renewal. You will face spiritual opposition. The enemy doesn't like it when we get serious about following the Lord. He is perfectly content with cultural Christians who do their church thing and feel satisfied, smug, and safe. Satan hates Christians who are dissatisfied with churchianity and willing to change their habits to follow Christ. You will face spiritual opposition, my friends, and not just from Satan and his forces of darkness. It is friends, neighbors, co-workers, and even family members who will oppose your newfound spiritual growth. They will register their disapproval for a variety of reasons. Maybe they are jealous of your new allegiance to the Lord, or threatened by your renewed love for Christ. When obeying Christ is the priority, others may feel abandoned or even rejected. Maybe they don't like the changes that this new faith makes in your life. Maybe it bothers them because they realize that you have something they don't have. Maybe they feel left out by your new loyalty to God. Perhaps it simply doesn't fit their agenda for life. Satan will use all of these reasons and many others to try and derail or distract your spiritual commitment. And one of the most common forms of opposition is scorn. People will laugh at you. They will make fun of you. Ridicule is the first line of attack which you may face in your commitment to grow spiritually. What do you do when faced with scorn? Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Let's unpack the scorn of Senballat and Tobiah in these verses so we can better understand how people attack our faith today. Remember, Senballat is the governor of the province of Samaria, north of Jerusalem. He is a powerful political enemy of Israel. Tobiah is an influential leader in the Ammonite government east of Jerusalem. If we can understand the basic elements of their ridicule, then we are better equipped to handle the scorn we face because the elements of this form of attack are the same today as they were then. Notice that the source of scorn is anger in verse 1. Literally, the Hebrew word means he was angry and very enraged. The word for anger means to be very hot. The Hebrews quite often use this word in a picturesque manner with respect to the nostrils, the nose. They would say his nose is very hot, meaning that the person is very angry. 
Scorn and anger often go hand in hand. You know as well as I do that when we get angry with someone, we quite often make fun of them. Our ridicule says more about us, of course, and our anger than it says about the other person that we are ridiculing. In fact, the ridiculer is more ridiculous than the ridiculee. Those who study influence and persuasion call scorn a silencer. Silencers are wrong, immoral, because the person tries to silence his or her opponent through ridicule or countercharges. Those who oppose the changes you are making will falsely accuse you or call you names or make fun of you. The Institute for Propaganda Analysis in World War II listed a number of devices that were considered unethical persuasion. They listed name-calling, for example. Name-calling is using labels to influence others. And glittering generalities is another one. That's branding someone with a charge that cannot be verified. These, they argued, were forms of immoral propaganda. Classic propaganda. Sanballat and Tobiah were using these methods to destroy Nehemiah and stop the changes he is making. And there may be people today who try to do the same to you when you start making changes in your life to follow Christ. I think we should notice that this scorn is actually an encouraging sign. It means that the people of Israel are succeeding in their project to rebuild the walls. Nobody pays any attention to someone who is failing. The very fact that they face such scorn says that they are making progress. That's why in the Hebrew Bible, these verses are actually included as part of chapter 3, and the new chapter doesn't begin until verse 4 of our chapter 4. The Hebrew Bible connects the ridicule to the success of the rebuilding project in chapter 3, not the failure of the project. One of the more important things to remember when people make fun of you is that the ridicule and name-calling is not a sign of failure, but of success. The reason you are being scorned is because you are making progress in rebuilding your life, and whoever is ridiculing you doesn't like the progress. The scorn rises from anger that you are growing and succeeding, and so a threat to the person who is calling you the names. Now, if the source of scorn is anger, then in verses 2 and 3, the pattern of scorn is predictable. Scorn and ridicule are so boringly predictable. You can see it all the time in politics. When we ridicule someone, we think we are being so clever. But in fact, the forms of ridicule are as old as mankind. They are very boringly predictable techniques of influence. So there's no reason to be surprised by scorn. First, the enemy must establish a setting. Ridicule must be set up to be effective. Sanballat calls a public meeting of the leaders of his province. It could be the army, as the King James Version translates it, or it could be the wealthy and influential nobles, as the New American Standard translates it. 
But either way, the ridicule works best when there is a sympathetic audience. It's propaganda, after all, and propaganda is always very predictable. Next, we see that there are five scornful questions followed by a joke. These questions employ personal attacks, sarcasm, and exaggeration. Ridicule likes a good joke to end the attack. Now look at the questions with me, because they are so predictable. Question number one. Sanballat asks, what are these feeble Jews doing? The Hebrew word feeble is used of a withering plant. The Jerusalem Bible translates this phrase as pathetic Jews. The reason ridicule is often effective is that it hits us where we are weak. We all have insecurities or weaknesses, and scorn attacks our weaknesses with sarcasm. The Jews were weak. They knew it. It always hurts when someone ridicules a weakness that we know we have. That is why making fun of someone works to silence them or stop them, and why the ridicule of a family member can be so effective. Family members know our weaknesses, so it hurts when they make fun of us. Question number two. Are they going to restore it for themselves? This is a reminder of all of their past failures. Thirteen years earlier, the work had been stopped because the king believed a false charge about the Israelites. The king thought that they were rebuilding the wall so they could rebel, Sanballat is saying. What makes them think they will be successful this time? Have you ever faced that attack before in your life? What makes you think you can accomplish your goal this time? You've tried many times before. You've failed before. You're just a loser. Question number three. Can they offer sacrifices? Now, most commentators take this as a reference to one of the actual sacrifices mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. In this sense, it is not ridicule, but simply acknowledging their goals. However, I think commentator Derek Kidner, in his commentary, is correct when he says that this scorn was an attack on their faith. The sacrifices are being laughed about as a form of prayer. You are so impotent, you need your God to fix your problems. We could paraphrase it as, will they pray the wall up? Isn't it hard to take when someone says in public, why don't you go home and pray about it, ha, 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 ha. I guess you need lots of prayer, he, 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 he. Do you think your God will fix it all for you, lol? It hurts when people make fun of us like that, doesn't it? Question number four. Can they finish in a day? The point is that they are clueless. They don't understand the size and scope of the job they are tackling. They were saying that these Jews were naive and ignorant. None of us like to be considered naive and ignorant, so the sarcasm hurts. You actually believe God hears your prayers? You are so gullible. 
We want our co-workers to think of us as worldly wise, not naive, sharp and clever, not dull and gullible. Making fun of us as gullible is an effective way to stop our progress sometimes. We pull back because of the criticism. Question number five. Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? This is deliberate exaggeration. The gates had been burned and the walls were torn down, but there's no reason to believe that the stones had been burned up and disintegrated so that they would have to cut new stones for the wall. To quarry rock and transport it to the site would have been a massive project. Ridicule loves exaggeration, so that we will become discouraged and quit. Scorn exaggerates our problems and highlights our challenges, so that we will say, you know, you're right, the job is just too big for me. Then finally, we come to Tobias' joke in verse 4. Scorn likes to make others the butt of a joke. Tobias' joke attacks the quality of the construction. Ridicule often uses sarcasm to make fun of even our successes. Even a little fox would touch the walls and they would just fall down, Tobias says. Of course, the Jews knew that these walls were not the same quality as the walls built by their forefathers. Archaeological excavations show us this reality their rebuilt walls would hardly compare to the glory of Solomon's temple. The joke hurt, not because it was true, a fox, of course, would not knock down the wall, but because there was an element of truth behind the sarcasm. Jokes today hurt the same way. Facebook memes are designed to make fun of us. They cut because we are the butt of a joke that has an element of truth in it. So, my friends, we have identified the elements of ridicule. We have seen how predictable it is and how it comes out of our own success in life. But now, how do we handle the ridicule? The answer is very simple, really. When faced with scorn, take it to the Lord. When faced with scorn, take it to the Lord. Scorn is effective. Ridicule is discouraging. And if we let it get to us, we will quit because we don't want to be hurt. We don't like the past thrown into our faces. So rather than continue to face the ridicule, we back off. We give up. My friends, let me encourage you today. When faced with scorn, take it to the Lord. Nehemiah 4, 4 through 6. Look at those verses. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. I think we can see three rules of response in the war of words that Nehemiah experiences, and we can apply these rules of response from Nehemiah 4, 4 through 6, to our lives today. Here they are. 1. Thou shalt remember thy resource. 
2. Thou shalt recognize the attack. 3. Thou shalt retaliate not. The first rule when attacked is thou shalt remember thy resource in verse 4. Nehemiah knows where to go when faced with scorn. He takes it to the Lord in prayer. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. The Hebrew word for despised means to be treated with contempt. Sanballat and Tobiah mocked and despised the Israelites. Contempt is one of the most powerful ways that others will try to destroy you. Contempt hurts. It cuts deep into our souls. If you have been broken by past failures, then the minute you commit yourself to renewal, to change, you can expect the doubts to come flooding into your mind. The devil will say, what makes you think you can do anything for the Lord? You've always failed before. You will only fail again. You're no good. You're a loser. Other people may imply those same thoughts because of your past failures. Do not let ridicule, scorn, or doubt derail your renewal. I like what Jack Hayford says in this regard. He writes, I was praying one day, and my adversary whispered, That doesn't sound like much of a prayer to me. And I answered, And that, you scoundrel, is because I'm not talking to you. You must counteract the lies of the devil by trusting in your resource, my friends. God Almighty has your back. He's the one who will give you the victory over the past. We talk much about low self-esteem today. The world tells us that the answer to low self-esteem is to believe in yourself. The Bible tells us that the answer to low self-esteem is to believe in God. Faith in God is the answer when you are faced with your past. No matter what you have done or what you have experienced in the past, God can restore you by his grace. Trust him, not yourself, and this is the key to spiritual victory. All of us have experienced insecurities and weaknesses. All of us have feelings of inadequacy and failure. But we will only find success in overcoming these feelings by consistently trusting in God. Don't let Satan sidetrack you by the fear of past failures, or your spiritual commitment will be aborted. There's a saying which goes, The next time the devil comes to remind you about your past, Remind him about his future. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does in verses 4 and 5. The second rule of response to ridicule is thou shalt recognize the attack. Nehemiah prays, return their reproach on their own heads and give, give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. His prayer sounds harsh, but Nehemiah understood the nature of the attack. This was an attack against God, not against him or the people. God had directed the rebuilding, so Sanballat and Tobiah were laughing at God. They were making fun of God. Therefore, 
it was God who should respond, not Nehemiah. Nehemiah turns over the response to God. The work was God's, so the judgment must be God's. Nehemiah is expressing his desire that God judge their enemies, but by taking it to God, he recognizes that this is God's fight, not his. And in the same way, we must depersonalize the issue by realizing that it is an attack against God, not against us. Nehemiah uses a wordplay in the Hebrew text, which is lost in our English translations. The word for plunder is a word which sounds much like the word for despised in the Hebrew language. It's something like a rhyme. To give you the idea, Nehemiah says to God, Notice how we were buzzed, so give them over to be bizzed. He is asking God to give them back what they have given out. God, do to them what they have done to us. Make the judgment fit the crime. Now, many Christians are bothered by prayers like these in the Bible. They are called imprecatory prayers. And this is an example of imprecation. Imprecation is calling down God's judgment upon the enemies of God's people. These kinds of prayers are frequent, actually, in the Psalms, but are also found other places in the Bible. And this is one of them. This is not the place to to do a deep study of imprecatory prayers, but I would say that I believe that this kind of prayer is an appropriate response for the believer under this important condition. When the attack against us is really an attack against God, we can pray these kinds of prayers. We never have the right to carry out vengeance ourselves. Imprecation releases to God the right of vengeance. We submit to him by not taking action ourselves, but rather turning it over to him in prayer. So the call for vengeance stays between the believer and his God. Sometimes we need somebody to go to so that we can release our anger and hurt without violating God's will. We never have the right of vengeance, so we turn that right over to God in imprecation. We take it to God and release all of our feelings and hurts to his control and submit to his response. My friends, We've all faced contempt from others and wanted to fight back. We know that as Christians we must not respond to our enemies like we would like to respond. What we need is an acceptable way to take out our frustrations. Take it to the Lord. Tell him everything. Don't hold back from God. Tell him your feelings, your anger, your bitterness. Tell him what you would like him to do, but then leave it with God. Let it go. Fortunately, our prayers are not going to be printed for all posterity to analyze like Nehemiah's prayer. In the inner recesses of our hearts, we can let God have it, and then release will bring healing to our souls. The Three Rules of Response are thou shalt remember thy resource, 
thou shalt recognize the attack, and thou shalt retaliate not. Verse 6. The very first thing most of us want to do when put down by other people is retaliate. We want to hit back harder than we were hit. We want a snappy comeback, a real zinger, that will lay that person out. Twitter and Facebook give us the opportunity to zing people without ever having to face them. We can put people down from a distance, which is why social media is so destructive. When someone ridicules us, we respond in kind, and the whole process degenerates into tit-for-tat insults. You hurt me, so I will hurt you harder. But notice how the people of Israel responded to this ridicule in verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. They kept working. It's that simple. They didn't even snap back. They didn't even defend themselves with long explanations. They just kept working. You see, my friends, the devil would like nothing better than to distract us from the job God calls us to do. If we take the time to defend ourselves or work at, at thinking up snappy comebacks, then Satan wins. He gets us sidetracked from the business we are to be doing. I like what Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 26, verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a place for a response to foolish talk, because the very next verse in Proverbs, verse 5, says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Finding the balance between these two proverbs is important for all of us. Usually, the best response to fools who would laugh at us is to simply carry on with the work God wants us to do. Let the work speak for itself and don't dis get distracted by fools, my friends. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 23 to 26 these words. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Facebook is full of foolish and ignorant talk. We should avoid those conversations like we avoid the plague. Those foolish arguments produce nothing good, nothing of eternal value, and they distract us from what God wants us to do. Keep your eyes on what God wants you to do in this world, and that, my friends, is not to become an expert zinger on Twitter. What is God's goal? The verse tells us repentance. We correct error with kindness and gentleness so that the fools will come to their senses and repent. That way they will escape the captivity of Satan. You see, 
People are not our enemies. The opposite political party is not our foe. Our enemy is Satan. People are the victims of Satan. So our goal is to lead those victims of Satan to faith in Christ. That's our goal. Keep your eyes on the goal. If you commit yourself to spiritual renewal, then you can expect to face ridicule and sarcasm sooner or later in life. Count on it. The memes will fly. The best advice that I can give you is to ignore it. Ignore it. Remember the lesson of Nehemiah. When faced with scorn, take it to the Lord. Don't take the ridicule personally. Don't get caught up in reacting to the scorn of others. Let those words run off you like water on a duck's back. Two psychiatrists supposedly met at their 20th college reunion, according to the story. One was vibrant and young-looking, while the other looked old and withered. So what's your secret, the older-looking psychiatrist asked. Listening to other people's problems every day for years on end has made an old man of me. The vibrant and youthful-looking psychiatrist replied, So who listens? Now, I don't think that's good advice for psychiatrists, for sure. But it certainly is a good policy for us when faced with scorn. Don't listen. So who's listening? It will only tear you up inside and get you down. The end result is that the enemy wins. So take it to the Lord and leave it there. Let him handle it. Pastor and author Stuart Briscoe talked about the qualifications of a pastor. But I think they apply to all of us as Christians. He said we need the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. I like that. Theodore Epp, founder of Back to the Bible, realized something was wrong at one point in his ministry when he stopped receiving critical mail. Now, most of us don't want to read a critical email, but he believed critical mail was valuable. He said, I'm afraid that when I'm pleasing everybody, I'm not pleasing the Lord, and pleasing the Lord is what counts. My friends, are you trying to please others, or are you trying to please the Lord?